We're in a war. Something that disturbs me at times is when I see Christians have a glib or a flippant attitude about the fact that we're in a war. Yeah, the war has been won. It was won at the cross. And yet the battle is on until the God of this world is forced to relinquish the title to this earth, which we see in Revelation chapter 5. We're in a war. We've been looking at the nature of this war the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, the conflict. In verses 10 through 13 in Ephesians 6, We've spent a couple of weeks looking at, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at worldviews in conflict, the way that we look at the world around us. That's what our, everybody has one. And it's all important. Uh, last week, we looked at kingdoms in conflict because after all, what informs my worldview? It's the kingdom that I'm a part of. If I'm a part of the kingdom of darkness, my worldview is going to be dark. If I'm a part of the kingdom of light, well, then my worldview is going to be shaped by that. So that's the last couple of weeks. Now this week, is, we're going to spend this week and next week, uh, the scene shifts in Ephesians 6 from the war to the warrior uh, and God's provision for him, for us. So this morning, we're going to look at the warrior's armor. And, and, and the armor, if you think about it on a soldier, it's largely defensive. Yeah, you'd be foolish to take the offense in the battle without your armor. But what he's talking about is how we defend in this war. Next week, we'll look at the warrior's weaponry. And that's offensive, largely offensive in nature. And we're going to look at it here in Ephesians 6. We're going to look at a powerful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that talks about the offensive weapons of this war. So, The important thing, the the overarching principle in both of these is that as believers, as Christians, we operate in this war always from a God-centered stance, not a worldly or Satan-centered stance. We're not chasing demons around, guys. Uh, We are, if we want to be effective in this war, committed to what God's word has to say about it and how we engage in the battle. That's why Paul is writing this. Uh, remember, think about this. Paul, he's there in Rome. He's been there. He's, he's spending two years there. It's when he writes four, we call them the prison epistles, because he's in jail. Well, he's not literally in jail. He's chained to a Roman guard under house arrest in a rented house. And he's impressed by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. And as he's there and he's chained to this guy, he's got plenty of time to check this guy's armor out. And, and and the wheels are turning. He's seeing similarities. He's seeing a, a, a beautiful metaphor, really. I mean, if you want to talk, he's talking about how to do battle spiritually. He's looking at how the soldier physically is armed for battle and how he wears defensive armor. And so that's part of it. You also got to remember that Paul was, I mean, this guy is, he had like the equivalent of a double PhD in theology. He knows the Old Testament. That was the Bible that they had at the time. They didn't, the new one was in the works. And so he's also reflecting back in God's word because he knows it well. And in the scriptures in Isaiah 59, uh, Isaiah says, for he put, he's talking about God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So I believe that both of these are coming into play in Paul's mind as he's inspired to write. Uh, was it a Roman soldier? Was it a Hebrew soldier? Elements of both, because it's a metaphor. It's, it's a story that's laid out to, to set up a parallel between the spiritual realm and the physical realm so that we can relate. That's his point. So now here, as we've looked at verses 10 through 13, we see that there are three imperatives. You guys remember what an imperative is? All right. Uh, there's an indicative. That's something that comes at me. There's an imperative. That's something that comes from me. An imperative is a command. All right. And if you're a healthy believer, you understand that the commands of God are things to obey. 
And so he's given three imperatives in these verses leading up to where we're going to be at this morning. The first, remember last week, we talked about the power that, that we are to be strengthened in the Lord. It's his power. If we are not going to engage in this battle in his power, we're going to try to do it on our own strength. We're doomed to fail before we start. So he says, be strengthened in verse 10. In verse 11, he says, put on the whole set of armor. Uh, the, the Greek word is panoplia. We'll get to that in a minute. So the second one, he says, be strengthened. He says, put on. Why? The purpose, what's the purpose of that? In verse 12, he gives the purpose. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Principalities, we're, we're, our battles against spiritual forces, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The third imperative that we looked at, and, and I, I'm just doing this because, as you know, context is all important. We have to understand the context of where we're going this morning. The third imperative was in verse 13, where he, he says that having been empowered by the Lord, readied by his protective armor, we now stand in the battle. So he says, stand. That's an imperative. He's saying, do it. He's not saying get out there and again, start. I I so clearly remember having a guy acting like he was chasing demons around in the ceiling of my living room one time. And it was like, please, that's just, it's sensationalized. It's giving Satan way more press than he needs. So we see that these are the things that he is asking of us, that God, through the inspiration of his scripture, of the scripture, is asking of us. He's saying, these are the things you need to do to be prepared to engage in the battle. Now, I want to back up a little bit, though. It's worth noting that immediately before this passage that we looked at the Roman household. We looked at Roman rule. Uh, and we looked at wives submit, husbands love, children obey, slaves be subject, and masters beware, because God's not a respecter of persons. He's not partial, because you're the boss. We looked at what Paul did. <laughs> he understood, because he's a Roman citizen and a Hebrew and a Jew, he had dual citizenship. And we understand that that the way he approached this was he approached it on, on the basis of the law, the Roman law of patria potestas. And what that was, was that the Romans figured out, we don't have to have <laughs> this huge police force. We just have to give the head of the household all of the power. And so the guy that was the husband, the father, I mean, his kids were subject to him as long as they lived under his roof. It didn't matter if they were 50 years old. But the husband, the, 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 the father, and the owner of the slaves, because slaves, slavery was huge in that culture. And so they gave the, the father all of the authority to rule in the family. <clears throat> Paul systematically, in Romans chapter 5 and then early in chapter 6, dismantles it. He takes it apart. But it's not to incite a riot. It's not to incite rebellion against Rome. It's to say there's a higher ideal by which you want to live. Because remember, we talk about the horizontal, our relationships with others, and the vertical, our relationship with the Lord. So he's saying, look, this relationship, this vertical relationship with the Lord transcends. It's far above any earthly rule. All right? So the point that he made when he said, look, it's all in light of mutual submission to the Lord. It's not about... In, in the Jews, it was about law. Remember the, the Jewish patriarchal system. The, the the father was it. He was the head. He may not have been sub- subject to the Roman law, but it was about the law of Moses. And he was the boss. And a woman was considered property. Jesus elevating women to equal status as men. So to the Jews, it was law. For the Romans, it was about order. We talk about law and order. And that's how things were established then. And Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's not about law. It's not about order in a human sense. It's about submission to Christ. Because when you're doing that, you're fulfilling everything that the earthly law talks about. And you're honoring God at the same time. All of this is in the greater context as we looked further back, backing up, of walking in the Spirit walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the real enemy, if we look at this, the real enemy wasn't Rome. The real enemy to these people, because he's elevated into the spiritual realm, that's where our obedience lies, 
is in the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of Rome, not the, 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 the empire of Rome. Because it stands in direct opposition to the rule of Christ in our lives. Because it stands in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Looked at that last week when we talked about kingdoms in conflict. So there were then and there are now spiritual forces at work who would want to take this whole thing apart. Who would want to dismantle not government rule, but the rule of Christ. Very serious. That's why I said it, it bugs me sometimes when I see people with a flippant attitude about spiritual warfare because it's real. And the battle is for your life. It, it, it's for our convictions. That's why we talked about worldview. What are the, the convictions that I hold? The battles for our culture. That's why we talked about the kingdoms that are in conflict. Look around in our culture. It's coming apart at the seams. The battles for our marriages. That's why Paul says, look, it's not about, you know, husbands and wives under Rome. He says, it's about Jesus and the church. And that marriage is an earthly reflection. The battles for our children, our grandchildren, for their minds. The battles for our churches. We were talking with our friends last night about how sad it is in the last 30 or 40 years that you've seen the church diminished in our society. It's not diminished in the eyes of God. Not a bit. I would love to see this place full, but I'm not going to fill it with carnal means. We want to fill it with people that want to know God and want to grow in their relationship with Him. So, essentially... It's about the enemy's assault on our families, on our culture, and on our future. And if you're a Christian, you're called to take a stand in the battle. It's just part of it. It was so with Rome. It's so with us. So having looked now in Ephesians here at the power, the protection, and the posture that we have in the battle, now let's begin to look at the provision for the warrior of God in his or her armor. Verse 13, uh, we'll read through verse 17 together of Ephesians 6. He says, therefore, based on what I've just been saying, that's what therefore is there for, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As I mentioned, this is a metaphor. This is not something that's meant. I mean, we don't need to go out to the Christian bookstore and buy some armor. <laughs> but it's, it's something that Paul lays down a physical reality to get us to relate to the spiritual. Uh, and it applies, even though this is a masculine metaphor, it applies equally to women. I mean, that's a given. It's, this is, we all are called to be equipped for the battle. In verse 13, he says, take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day. So what he talks about in verse 11, he says, put on the armor of God. Uh, it's the same thing in, in chapter 4 where he says, put on, put off the old man, put on the new man. It, that's the word. The Greek word is enduo. And, and what it means is to be clothed with. It's, it's when you got dressed, you put on your clothes. And that is, but he's given a general principle, a broad principle in verse 11, where he says, put on the armor of God. Now in verse 12, uh, he gives the reason of the principle again, because we're standing against the powers and the principalities and, and, and the rulers of darkness and all that. In verse 13, he seeks a specific response. It's different from the general principle. Now he gets specific. He goes from the general to the specific. And, and, and he says, not put on, but he says, take up the armor of God. And it's different. It's specific. What this word means is analambano. And what it means, it, again, it's an imper- imperative. He's saying, take it up. This is a command. It, it, he's saying, take up 
the whole armor of God. What it means is pick it up and put it on, essentially. So it's specific. Uh, the panoplia, it's the word here for armor. What it means is the whole set of armor. It'd be like a conscript. You walk into the barracks and there at the base of your bunk, you've got all of your stuff piled up. He's saying, yeah, that pile of stuff, that pile of armor, pick it up and put the whole thing on because you're headed for battle. That's his point in this. He's saying, this is what you specifically need to do to make yourself ready for the battle. Take it up. It's a verb. It, it, it's active. It's intentional. It denotes a response being required on our behalf. He says that you may be able to withstand. Again, uh, this is a fascinating word. Uh, I, I, was, I, got, I was just kind of blown away when I started looking at this. What it, it doesn't mean you just stand there. The word is antistomy. It's the same root word. We get antihistamine. He's not saying, you know, take some Benadryl for the battle. That's not what he's saying. But but it's interesting. What it means is to hold pressure against. It's though, all right, the battle comes, and I don't just stand there, but I push back. So what he's saying is that you may be able to withstand the enemy's onslaughts is that when he comes at you, you push back. When I take an antihistamine, a histamine response in my body, uh, I know some of you have allergies, like a peanut allergy or those kind of things. Uh, and if there's a histamine response, is that your body pushes back. It perceives a greater danger for people that have a problem. It perceives a greater danger than the one ex- that exists. And you can die from that response, that pushback of your body. And so what he's saying here, it's the same thing in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, therefore, submit to God, re- resist the devil. Antistami, the devil, and he will flee. Push back. How do you push back? By the word of God. So he says, stand therefore in verse 14, uh, having girded your waist with truth. Now he's going to get into the armor now. And, and this is fascinating. <laughs> he says, having girded your waist with, tr- waist with truth. There's two interpretations of this. I'm going to give you both and you can pick one. <laughs> and Take it and run with it, because they both lead to the same conclusion. The first thing that we're going to talk about is a gird. (laughs) And you might wonder, what's a gird? Well, it's what we would call a girdle. And now, and yeah, guys, if you're getting a picture of like a woman's girdle, put no, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you girdle your waist. If you think about in first century, in the first century, they all wore these long tunics. All right. And, and there would be a sash that they tied around their waist that was part of their outfit, part of their tunic. Now, if a guy or, or a woman was going to engage in activity, you're going to go out in the field or you're going to go to battle or whatever, that tunic's going to get in the way. It's going to trip you up. And so their girdle, their sash, they would gather their tunic up and tuck it in. So they could move freely. So they were freed up. So they were able to engage, in this case, in the battle, or in this case, to cover it now with the armor. Uh, it's an idiom. Gird up your loins means get ready for battle. That's what it's talking about. The second interpretation of this is it's a belt. You've heard of the, of the belt of truth. Uh, it was attached at the waist, and it was used to attach the scabbard for the soldier's sword. And that fits... Uh, it was also used to secure the breastplate to hold it down so it wasn't flopping up and <laughs> hitting him in the face. So either one of these works. What he's talking about is the fact that um, it's used to secure the, uh, the word loins here. It refers to the personal area of one's life. Again, this metaphor, uh, the private life of a spiritual man or woman must be surrounded by truth. That's what he's getting at. Regardless of whether you look at it as a girdle or, or a belt, the effect is the same. He's talking about truth and truth in the inward parts. Second Samuel 11, verse 1, It happened in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon, 
when they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. In the day that he should have been in the battle, David took off his armor. He took it off, literally. He succumbed to the temptation that the enemy had put before him. He got involved with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, killed her husband, and then tried to cover it up. That's what happens when you take off the armor. He was confronted two years later by Nathan the prophet. If you're a student of God's word, you know the story. Nathan comes to him and he tells this story about this this guy that had one precious little lamb. Uh, and, and, and then this other guy is going to throw a feast. And rather than draw from his own flocks, he takes the one little lamb. And David's incensed. He says, that guy ought to die. And Nathan says, well, that guy is you. Psalm 51, David's response to Nathan confronting him over his sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David was broken. The full force of the conviction of his actions for his actions came to bear in his life. And he repented. He turned to God, confessing his sin. How do you disarm the enemy? Truth. Truth. First John chapter 2, John says, My little children, we were talking last night about how John was this old man and he was in the church at Ephesus, this church that Paul's writing to, and they would carry him in. And he would address the people, regardless of their age, because he's an old guy, he's like in his 90s, and, and he would say, my little children, little children, let me appeal to you. And, and he says here, he says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That came long after David, and yet God's heart was the same. David was fully forgiven. He was fully restored. The principle of reaping and sowing came to bear in his life because that which a man sows, he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. David had trouble with his family. There were consequences to his sin that he endured for the rest of his life. Sin is costly. And that is what the enemy is constantly trying to pull us into. That is the battle. To, pref- to, to, to profess Christ and to live in habitual sin, the point here is it's a lie. You're living a lie. The only way to stand is to have your loins, the secret part of you, supported by and bound up in truth. That's the belt of truth. That's the gird up your loins with truth. The second thing we see here in verse 14, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the second piece of armor that he goes into, the soldiers, standard equipment, going into battle, you wore a breastplate, and that was a, a large piece of armor that covered your torso and your, and your upper body. It protects vital organs. Uh, it protects the heart. And the spiritual breastplate that we have, our spiritual armor, protects the areas where we're most vulnerable. It protects the area of our heart. Satan knows our weaknesses. He knows the areas where, I'll tell you what, he hits us on our bruises. He doesn't hit us where we're strong. He hits us where he knows that he can perhaps get gain entry and get past that breastplate to get to our hearts, to pierce the weakest areas. So as we look at what righteousness is here, righteousness simply is right living. That's the the very simple definition of it. But the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's eyes. So the the righteousness spoken here uh, is, it's simply, it's, it's moral Perfection, moral purity, it's God's holy perfection. And that shows up in our lives in two ways. 
The first is we've been justified. The doctrine of justification is a central doctrine, understanding in the Christian church. And it's important. What it means is that the moment that I gave my life to Christ, the moment I released my life to him, let the weight of my life down on him, I was declared just. I was justified in God's eyes. My sin was gone, just as if I'd never sinned. So it's imputed. I was, I was dipped in the righteousness of Christ. And it comes by faith. It comes by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, realizing that the resurrection couldn't hold him because he had that moral perfection. And now that's transferred to me. I'm justified. Romans 3.23 and 24, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and being justified freely by his grace, now we're redeemed in Jesus Christ. Praise God. There's no way we can stand before a holy God without righteousness. And the, the problem with religion is you, it, it assumes you can create your own. You can't. We can never do enough. We can never be good enough. We can never be holy enough. We can never do enough right living. We can't do it. It has to come because it's imputed to us, because it's freely given to us, because our lives are now immersed in it. Because Jesus took our place, living a life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved. By faith, we walk clothed in his righteousness. That's the point. The second way that this shows up in our lives is sanctification. It's God's action in shaping us to become more like Christ. And that is a process that takes place over a lifetime. In Romans 12.10, Paul the Apostle says Satan is here. He's seen as the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that accuses us. He is the one that wants to condemn us. I may come under conviction when I sin, but as a child of God, as somebody that belongs to the kingdom of God, I'm not condemned. That condemnation has passed away. God sees me as righteous. I am not condemned. And believe me, folks, part of the battle is he wants to lead you into sin and then condemn you for it and leave you just straggling along out there trying to figure it out. Realize like David, against God. My sin is against God. It's not against man. Yeah, it might be against someone. But at the end of the day, it's against God. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we're told in First John. The point here is that as we look at the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, that which covers our hearts, that we stand in the imputed righteousness of Christ and we walk in the imparted righteousness of the Holy Spirit as we go. The third piece of armor we want to look at here in verse 15, he says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is interesting because when I, you read this and it's just like on, on the surface, you think shoes, <laughs> but there's a lot here. Once more, we explain a kingdom principle through the imagery that Paul uses of a Roman soldier. When he talks about preparation, it's a readiness for action. It suggests, the, the way that the text is structured, it suggests a continual readiness. It's not just, I was ready, is I'm continually ready to engage in the battle. And historically, Roman battle shoes, they're interesting. I looked them up, was studying them. Uh, they were known as caligae. They had spikes in them, or, or heavily textured soles. And they were used for a soldier to be able to gain a, a firm footing when he's engaged in battle. That's a great parallel. Not only would these comfortable shoes be, uh, they would enable the soldier to march several miles without pain, but the spikes would help them to stand their ground when they're engaged in the battle. So the interesting thing here is that Paul identifies these with the firm footing of the gospel of peace. Clearly, in this particular piece of armor, the word peace is emphatic. He's emphasizing peace. So the firm standing in this piece of armor is the firm assurance of God's love extended through his grace. Paul speaks here of the love that we have been given and our readiness to share that love with a dying world. That's the point of this particular piece of armor. In this love, we stand. And that's the only way we stand having our feet shod with the gospel, uh, uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
The fourth piece of armor we see here is the shield of faith. In verse 16, he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This is a major piece of armor. It's also a picture, if you look back in the first century, the Roman army, they were, they were an invincible force. They were a formidable force when they were on the march. And they had a formation that was called the phalanx. All right. Uh, what this formation was is they had these big shields. I mean, they were like body-sized shields that they would carry in front of them. And the shields were made in such a fashion as that when a line of soldiers lined up in formation, they could lock their shields together. As the first, and they would line up according to rank. I, I, I read that and I smiled to myself. I thought, was it like the lower ranks first? Like, hey, yeah, you, <laughs> you take the arrows. Or was it the higher? I don't know. But the first line of soldiers would hold their shields forward. The second line would hold their shields up. You may have seen pictures of this or, or seen a movie where this is done. And what it would do is it would protect the soldiers from the onslaught of the enemy. And usually what they used, and very often in that day, they didn't have guns. They didn't come along until way later, was that they were able to deflect the fiery arrows of the enemy. Uh, literally, this translates arrows that burn. What are those? They're enticements to sin. We hold up the shield of faith. No, I am a child of the king. I don't have to engage in this. I don't have to respond to this temptation. We looked at, last week, we looked at Adam and Eve. And when she and Adam succumbed to Satan's temptations, which are the fiery missiles of the enemy. Yeah, his, I told you, sure then, his strategy hasn't changed. He wants to draw you away. It's the same thing in battle. If you could separate out the weak, they're vulnerable. We looked at 1 John, where John talks about the lust of the flesh. In Adam and Eve's case, the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. It was the pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. Then we looked at, I'm not going to go through it again, at Jesus when he was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness after he was baptized and subjected to the same temptations. Different packaging, but the same temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The thing is, is that when it comes to that temptation, Adam and Eve said yes. Romans 5 tells us that when they did, death spread to all men. Jesus, again, in Romans 5, he's described as the second Adam. He said no. He withstood the enemy. He withstood him by the word of God. We looked at that. And as a result, the justification of life spread to all men, to any who would receive that life. The point here is that for believers, the penalty of sin for sin was broken at the cross. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. I no longer have to bend. I, it, I do not have to go along with that. And that's an act of volition, folks. It's an act of the will. That temptation comes. And here's how you quench the fiery arrows of the enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you uh, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I want to contrast this for a minute with the saying that people have, God will never give you more than you can handle. To which, if I know that person well at all, I will say, want to bet. (laughs) He consistently and constantly gives us more than we can handle. That's the point. It drives us to greater reliance on him. And what he wants us to do in the midst of the battle is to, for that battle to, to, to drive us to greater reliance on him. It's not about him giving us more than we can handle. It's about him giving us a way of escape when we have more than we can handle. You understand the difference? It's huge. So he'll, he, he will give you a way of escape. He will strengthen you. We're going to talk about how in a couple of minutes. 
It's also interesting to note that, yes, the penalty for sin was paid at the cross. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. And soon, brothers and sisters, the presence of sin will be gone forevermore. We won't be subject. I look around and I, I just, it, it is so aggravating. It is so stressful at times. And I'm just being straight up with you. I have to take these things to the Lord because things are, it just seems like things are falling apart. And yet the presence of sin will be done away. That's awesome. The next piece of, of armor we looked at, look at here is, is the helmet of salvation. Uh, he says, take up the helmet of salvation. And this is interesting because there's, if scripture interprets scripture, I, I've talked about that. And what he's saying, if you look here in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul talks about the helmet of salvation there, he gives us more information. Um, he portrays the, the helmet of salvation as the hope that we have of the coming of the Lord, the hope of our ultimate salvation. And, and in verses or chapter 5 of 1 Thess, in verses 8 to 10, we read, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain, obtain salvation through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him. So what does that have to do with us in the battle? How are you doing? Seriously, how are you doing with COVID-19? Concerns? Perhaps fears? How are you doing with government restrictions and uh, those who would exploit this disease? How are you doing with looking out and seeing our society spinning out of control? Perhaps, literally, I mean, it's there. How are you doing as you look out and see hopelessness, suicide, addiction to drugs, alcoholism, pornography, child abuse, all of the ills that are in our society as we have departed from God, now in the second generation, away from him, having taken God out of the public square and and, and relegated him to the back corner of our society. How are you doing as you look at all of that? How are you doing when you look at the church of Jesus Christ and you see the assault on the church from within? from those who would exploit, manipulate others using a false gospel narrative or by those who have a hatred for her from the outside. I've mentioned to you guys, it wouldn't take much in our culture for the camera, I'm talking about media, to swing and point right at the church and for great persecution to break out. I never thought as a pastor I'd be saying that, but that's a real thing out there. There is a mounting hostility against this church. How are you doing with all of that? The point in all of this is the helmet protects our mind. That's what it's for. And our minds need protecting. There's a lot to draw us off of the place where we need to be standing in the battle. Men don't have answers. Jesus does. Men serve the gods of depravity and lust and self-centeredness and hatred. Jesus offers new life. Men treat this life as though it was the only life that we would ever have. Jesus has promised to come back for us, his bride, to take us as his own people, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, every, fr- every frustration that we've endured, uh, to, to usher in everlasting peace. Those are the promises of God. The helmet of salvation, or it, it protects our mind. The, the, I'm, the point in that is that we look forward. I don't ever want to be in a place in my life where I am thinking so much about what's going on in the world that I forget to look up because my redemption draws nigh. That's our focus. Yes, these things are frustrating. Yes, they're real things. Yes, they're real concerns. But if I lose perspective and I take my eyes off of the word of God and the person of God, the Lord Jesus in my life actively today, I'm going to get sideways. And he's scoring a victory because he's taken my eyes off of him and onto the situations. Be careful, folks. Is it right to be concerned? Absolutely. This world is going nuts. 
but it's more right to keep your eyes on the Lord. The sixth thing that we look at here is the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17. Now, this is all of the, the, the pieces of armor up until now have been defensive in nature. I mean, largely, as I said, defensive. Yeah, you don't go on the offensive without them, but they're defensive. They're to keep us, to protect us. Now, the sword of the Spirit is an offensive weapon. It's the only one that Paul lists here that is largely offensive. Yes, it's defensive in ways, and we'll look at that. But the point is, is that we're talking about the sword of the Spirit in verse 17, which is the Word of God. This is fascinating. The Greek word for sword here is makaira. Now, that is the sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, it tells us. Uh, it's also, remember in the garden when Jesus got arrested and Peter was there and Peter pulls out his Machaira and he lops off this slave's, Malchus's ear, which always reminds me of my son being injured in a car accident and his ear being just hanging. I called him Malchus while he was healing. I was kind of a cruel dad. But the point is, is that it's a small sword. It's a small defensive sword that's made and offensive as well. But it's made for hand-to-hand combat. It's not like the Roman broadsword that they use. That's how the Romans solved problems. They came in with their big swords and <laughs> cleaned house. What he's talking about here is when you're doing combat. This is a sword that's made for combat. It's a, it's a sword that is made for exactly the kind of purpose spiritually that Paul is laying out here. Another thing I want to bring out here, and, and this was a little surprising to me because I've studied and I've taught this passage before, but I, I saw something here that I think is really interesting. Now, understand when I talk about this, I am not suggesting that we depart from the Word of God being everything in our lives, the written Word of God, which we have. The, when he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God here, the Greek word translated word refers not to the Bible, but to an exact spoken word. It's the word rhema, not logos, which is the written word. Rhema is a spoken word. I want to look at Matthew chapter 16. So now, before you throw rotten fruit at me and all of that, I want to make sure that that we stay clear on this. And I want to go to Matthew chapter 16, to Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. And I spoke about this briefly with our guys on Tuesday night. So I apologize for some of the duplication, but we're, we're looking at some things here. Jesus is talking about spiritual warfare. He's talking about the spiritual battle that's going on and, and the spirits that are exist, in existence in that realm. So in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 19, Jesus there uh, is at Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me set it up. Caesarea Philippi was a hive of demonic activity. In the first century and for centuries before that, it was prominently known as a place of Baal worship before the Greek influence, the Hellenistic influence. They did uh, regular human sacrifices at this place. It's on the flanks of Mount Hermon, and there's a big cave in the rock face. It's a huge rock face. And in that cave is a pool. Uh, it's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And, and that place... Uh, was by the time the Greeks came along, they built a number of temples to Greek gods. There was a temple of Pan right in front of this cave. It was called the Grotto of Pan. The cave was at that time. Now, before that, like I said, it was there was a lot of Baal worship, all kinds of stuff going back a long time. Right next to it was a temple of Zeus. And in this rock face, they carved people over centuries, carved niches where they would come and they would put their little marble gods, lowercase g gods, and the, their deities that they would worship. Now, in this area, there were no less than 14 pagan temples, all right? This was a huge, like I said, it was a center for occultic worship and occultic practice. Into this, Jesus takes his guys up there, and now he's going to teach them some things. He's always teaching his guys things, and, and I love what he teaches them here. He says, it says that Jesus, he'd asked him, he said, well, who do men say that I am? And some say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say, you know, uh, one of the prophets. And one of the guys on, on Tuesday night said, wow, reincarnation, really? And I said, yeah, that's what they were, that's how they answered him. And, and, but he sharpens it up, though. 
And, and in verse 15 of Matthew 16, he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Interesting. I don't think he just said that in a flat, dead monotone. You're the son of the living God. No, I think he said, you're the son of the living God. Not like implied all of these dead gods <laughs> that we're standing here looking at in this place. And I'll tell you what, just standing in that place, I've been there a couple of times. There is just, there is just, there's still a vibe there that is just, it's discomforting. Uh, and I don't want to get it weird about it, but it, it, this is a bad place. Anyway, Simon Peter answers him. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're not like one of these dead ones. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What had just happened with Peter? He had received a, a specific spoken word from God. Peter had, he, he, he was, and he wasn't even aware of it. He had no clue. As a matter of fact, further down in the passage, he kind of gets, and I just love Peter. I think he got a little full of himself. like, well, I'm speaking for God. So then he tries to, Jesus says, you know, I got to go and I got to suffer and do all that. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to go. And Jesus says, get behind me, not God. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. Because at that point, Peter wasn't speaking the things of God. He was speaking the things of man. Big contrast. And that's there on purpose, folks. So here, though, Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you just received a divine revelation. You received the word of God in you. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be going along, that we can start making things up. I will resist every time somebody that comes up to me and says, thus saith the Lord. It's like, well, when he tells me, you know, if they want to tell me something, that's fine. Or if they want to tell me, you know, God spoke to my heart because he does speak. That's the point. He speaks to us, but it's always by his spirit and through his word, his written word, his revealed word. It's never in contradiction to that. But there's some interesting things that are going on here. God deals with us through the realm of the natural, supernatural. In verse 18, Jesus says, and I say to you, you're Peter, Petros, little stone, you're, you're little rock. And on this rock, Petra, I'll build my church. Now, when he talks about Petra, he's not talking about the rock face of Mount Hermon. He's talking about the foundational truth that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that God had shown Peter and that Peter spoke to Jesus. He said, on that rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. Now, this grotto that was there in the rock face, under the rock face, in this cave, had a name. It was called the gates of hell. It was a physical place. Still there. When Jesus said this to Peter, I have to believe that he pointed. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. What is he talking about? That place was known... For centuries had been and still was known as it, it, the, they, the spiritistic people in their minds, they looked at it as the place where spirits descended into the lower parts of the earth and they ascended out of the lower parts of the earth. They looked at it as, to, as an entrance to the netherworld. So when Jesus says the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church, Number one, he means it. What he's saying is the councils, the, the, the forces of darkness, the demonic presence of this world will not prevail against my church. The, the councils of the unseen world, they're not going to prevail against my church. Very interesting. He says in verse 19, connected to that, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. For whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You could interpret this, or, or this is rendered, literally, whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Why? Because God speaks to his people. He's saying, look, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. You know what that means? In the first century, when you got the keys, if you were a slave... And, and you were in a, uh, your master's household. When he went to go on a journey, when he went to go on a trip, he would give his servants the keys to his kingdom, to his house. All right? 
What that did was it conveyed authority to that servant. He had the ability then, being the one who kept his father's or his master's property, to transact. He could do business on behalf of the owner of the property. He had what we would call an equivalent today, a power of attorney. He represented his master so completely that he could buy, he could sell, he could bind, he could lose. And what Jesus is saying here, again, metaphorically, in the spiritual realm, you have the authority to bind and loose. You have my authority. Stewards of the kingdom, when they, as stewards of the kingdom for us, when we operate in the spirit, when we're transacting business under the authority of our master, we're connected to him. That's why we have the authority to push back when the enemy launches an assault on us. As it relates to spiritual warfare, the gates of hell, the powers of darkness from the unseen world cannot prevail as I stand against the enemy and God gives insight and discernment by his spirit through his word, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Yes. Does God speak to us in the midst of the, yes, he does. There are many, many times in all of our lives where having hidden his word in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against him, which is what we're told in Psalm chapter one, that God by his spirit brings that word out. That I'm faced with a decision. I'm faced with a temptation. I'm faced with something that's going on. Somebody has decided to come against me. And the spirit of God speaks to my heart consistent with his word. That's the rhema. And it's essential that we understand that we have authority, that we're connected to the kingdom of heaven, that we have a direct line. If we don't walk in that, we're vulnerable. His word, essentially, what I'm saying is it comes to bear as God speaks it into my heart through the battles. What's the result? As we stand in the armor of God, as we have our lives girded with truth in our inward parts, in in our private lives, is there integrity? Because integrity is saying that who I am here at church is who I am at home, is who I am when I'm by myself. Truth in the inward parts, having my heart covered by his righteousness, knowing it's not mine. I'm so relieved that I don't have to work at this salvation. The work's been done. Yeah, we work out our salvation. That's different. That's the process that we're engaged in as both his righteousness is imputed to us and it's imparted to us as we walk. As we stand firm in the the gospel of peace, as we have the gospel, we keep the main thing, the main thing in our lives.